Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we've got an exciting show lined up that is especially relevant in Indian country, but like so many of the topics that we handle, it is not something that is just limited to First Nation peoples. We're going to be looking especially at diabetes and some of the most devastating complications. I say devastating, they often don't rise to the list of leading causes of death. But when you talk about impairing quality of life, we are right front and center talking about this topic. It is eye health, how diabetes plays into that whole equation. And I've got a great guest to help us today. She's Dr. Emily Chu. She's an ophthalmologist and a retinal specialist. Emily, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Emily, one of the things that's exciting to me is not only are you a specialist in the area that we're speaking about today, but you are actually working with leading eye researchers throughout the world. You actually work for the National Eye Institute. So, Emily, tell us about the National Eye Institute. It's one of the thoroughly funded government institutions of the National Institutes of Health, and our mission is to do research and to improve the vision of our people in the United States and throughout the world. So National Institutes of Health, I mean, a lot of folks have heard of the NIH. So the National Eye Institute, do you consider that a branch or division? What is the terminology there? Each institute belongs to National Institutes of Health. We have about 27 institutions that are part of the NIH. So we're a very separate separate in the institution in that we were looking, focusing mostly on eyes. Okay, so here we have someone joining us on American Indian Living, who's a specialist in eye health. She's a specialist in the retina. We're going to talk in just a moment what what that's all about. And she's working for the National Institutes of Health under that umbrella. So you've got your eye, really, Emily, is it fair to say, on eye health throughout America? That's correct. That is absolutely correct. So first of all, help us understand what a retinal specialist is. First of all, what is the retina? The retina is really the part of the eye that really sees well. It it lines the eyeball in the back, and it's part of the brain. And when the light comes into the eye, it hits the retina, and it's transferred into images, and we see with our brain. So the retina is really tissues of the brain, and we, we see with the brain. So basically, if I were looking in someone's eye, which I sometimes do as an internal medicine specialist, I look through the the clear lens, and my ophthalmoscope, that device that I'm peering into the eye with, is shining on the back of the eye or the retina, correct? That's correct. That's correct. And, And why is this such a critical part of the eye when it comes to the topic under discussion today, which is diabetes? Well, diabetic eye disease affects mostly the retina. That's where the vision problems come from. The blood vessels in the eye are in the retina, and as you may know, that diabetes is often a disease that really affects the blood vessels. So the retina is what's affected the most, and unfortunately, these changes might come on very 
very gradually and go on for a long time, and nobody really even realizes they have the eye disease until something catastrophic happens. I mean, I think this is one of the scariest things about all kinds of eye disease. We've heard so many stories, and those of us in medical practice have seen it played out, where someone is just oblivious to whether it's diabetic eye disease, whether it's macular degeneration or glaucoma. They're gradually losing their vision, and it seems like they don't even notice it. How, how can that be? Well, because the symptoms don't occur until very late stages, and unless you're detected early, and that's why screening is very important because we have good treatment, especially for diabetic eye disease. We have very good treatment, and they should be picked up early, and no one should suffer from blindness. Well, you've definitely got our interest because this is one of the uh, leading eye robbers. In fact, some of the statistics I've seen suggest that among adults in the United States, diabetes is the leading cause of blindness. Is that, is that true? That's absolutely correct. It's one of the four leading causes of blindness, and for People who are in the 20 to 74 years of age, it is the leading cause of blindness. So while we're completing that list in our minds, you've got diabetic eye disease right there at the top in that 20 to 74-year age group. What other causes of vision loss would be up in those top four? Age-related macular degeneration occurs usually in 60 and above, and that actually is the leading cause of all blindness because it affects many more people and it's going to get worse as we get older. Another cause is glaucoma, which gradually, gradually drops people of their vision. And finally, cataracts, but cataracts is eminently fixable, so that's really a, an important one to pick up as well. Now, we want to go into a lot of detail about eye health, and especially with the connection with diabetes. But before we do, Emily, people know your professional credentials. We've talked a little bit about that at the beginning. But I know my listeners are always engaged by the stories of my guests, how they got where they are today. Were you one of those people that you woke up one day when you were three years old and you said, I want to be a retinal specialist? Oh, absolutely not. I didn't know what that was when I was three years old. <laughs> I wanted to be, when I went to medical school, I wanted to be a pediatrician. I wanted to be looking after little sick little babies. Um, I did do that for a while, and I decided that that could be fun. But then I met someone who was doing research in, in eyes, and she was actually looking after children with eye disease. And I fell totally in love with the research and with what she was doing. And I thought, well, that's a real cool thing to do. And I ended up doing ophthalmology instead of pediatrician. So here I am. Very good. So, Emily, let's come back now to the topic uh, under discussion. We want to really focus on these sight-robbing diseases. We're going to speak a lot about diabetes today, but you've mentioned three other conditions. Maybe we'll start with the, uh, the last one first. As you were going through that list a little bit earlier, you mentioned cataracts. Is it true that there's a connection between cataracts and diabetes? I think there is. People who have diabetes have an increased risk of getting cataracts at an earlier age. Uh, and sometimes even with children, they can develop cataracts. So that, this is an important part of the diabetic eye disease. So when you're explaining to a layperson, a patient that you might be seeing, what a cataract is, how do you explain that? Well, when you look at the, the eye, the clear part is the cornea, like the, you know, the part of your watch, clock watch. You can see it's clear crystal. And then behind that is the iris, which gives you the color, blue or brown color. And behind that is a little piece that looks like a little lentil. It should be absolutely clear in, in young life, and as we get older, it becomes cloudier. 
and that's the piece that becomes a cataract, and, and we can physically remove that and replace it with an intraocular lens or, or a little piece that will help to focus your vision. One of the big questions I've heard debated is when to do cataract surgery. Some people say, well, you know, if you're starting to have cataracts for them, they're just going to get worse. Uh, a younger person's going to tolerate the procedure better. Don't wait too long. And then I've heard other people say, well, you know, until it's uh, really a problem, there's no reason to, you know, replace the lens because you could always have complications as straightforward as that procedure usually is. Where do the experts weigh in on that question today? There's no real right answer to that. And part of it has to do with the visual needs of the patient. You know, some people may just have excellent vision, but they have these types of cataract that causes a lot of glare and scatter, and they can't drive at night. They can't see well with certain lighting, and they could actually get their vision, you know, their cataract out at a fairly earlier stage. Or people having a particular type of cataract that affects their vision for reading, uh, and it's a very specific type of cataract, and they may still have 20-20 vision for the distance, but they can't read a darn thing, hmm. so they would have to have that out. And they're just people who have very low visual needs. They say, don't bother me. I can wait for a bit, and that's okay, too. So, But you don't want to get it so it's really, really, really hard and, 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 and very what we call ripe. But that doesn't happen much in this country, in actual fact. Most people are, have a, a reasonable time to, to get it out. Are there situations with this ripe cataract where you're more likely to have a problem with the procedure? That's probably true, but I think we rarely see that. That's more in the third world country where people have been waiting and waiting, waiting for cataract surgery. That it's impossible. The technique for doing cataract surgery is so, so incredibly, wonderfully easy now. Uh, people do very, very well. Uh, you know, the majority of people have, end up with very good vision, unless you have some other diseases that may complicate it. Okay, so let's let's come back then to couple of these other conditions before we really hone in on the, the diabetic eye disease. And you mentioned the macular degeneration now a couple of times. I, explain that uh, so that we could understand that regardless of whether we're a lay person or a health professional. Well, the macula refers to the very center part of the retina, which where you see best vision. And what happens is that there, there are buildup of material that builds up and and you end up losing vision because it causes deterioration of the macula, the center part of the eye where your 20-20 vision comes from. And it can become what we call a dry form, it's sort of a wear and tear that slowly graduates. You know, you lose central vision. But there's also a type called wet macular degeneration where new blood vessels grow, and they suddenly erupt and cause sudden changes in your vision. And that particular type, we can actually have good treatment for that. And for the first time in the last almost 10 years, we're able to treat those patients actually quite well and retain their vision and, in fact, improve their vision. So there is hope for people with that form. But with the dry form, we still don't have good treatment. And it's, that's, the, that's the most common cause is the, is the dry rather than the wet form. Now, is there a connection between diabetes and either of the forms of macular degeneration? We don't think so. Um, you know, Diabetes affects the retina, but in a very different way. The blood vessels are affected in a very different way. So we don't think there's a connection at all. Now, I had a patient in my office just, I want to say, a week ago, and he was saying he had kind of a strange experience with an ophthalmologist. He has some kind of problem. Maybe you can 
tell us if it was macular degeneration based on what he was describing. And he said the ophthalmologist actually had to, has been giving him injections in his eye. That's correct. That's correct. It, it could be macular degeneration. Those, those are the treatment we give to cure, or not to cure, but to improve the vision of patients with wet form macular degeneration. They could also have diabetic eye disease. We also give injections as well for, uh, for certain aspects. And people with blockages in the blood vessel in the eye also benefit from this. So that treatment has become fairly common and popular for a number of diseases in the eye. Now, I know that sounds scary to lay people, but this patient, what he was telling me, you can say, tell me if this is a common experience. He really said it, you know, it wasn't painful at all, but it just was weird. He saw something like kind of a swishing stuff when you're injecting this into the eye. Is this kind of the typical response that you get? That's a typical response, and, and, he, and the patient's absolutely right. The first one, people are petrified about it, but once they've had one, they always say, well, it's no big deal, I, I, you know, especially when they can improve their vision. It's, it's, I call it the miracle treatment of, of the century. Well, this is exciting because I know a lot of folks get scared. They hear about certain things. You were very discreet. You didn't mention anything about this, Emily. But uh, some people, you know, hear about these things, and I think it's great that you're uh, relieving any anxieties that might be out there. No, it's, it's a very good treatment, and we do our best to numb it. Some people can feel a little bit pain. I won't say it's going to be totally painless, but it can be actually not as bad as it sounds for sure. Well, in our next segment, we're going to be speaking about diabetic eye diseases specifically. But before we close out this segment in the final uh, minute or so that we've got, Emily, you also mentioned the disease process of glaucoma. Can you explain that uh, briefly for us? Glaucoma is actually usually hereditary in some in some instances and it's more common in African Americans. So we we promote the fact that people who are over forty and African Americans should actually have an eye exam. It causes your vision to be you know, diminished in the in your peripheral vision and it kinda of narrows down to almost a tunnel vision. So in the end when you have very end stage glaucoma you're like seeing through a pinhole. Wow. But certainly that's not something that is and so end stage but we have good treatment for it. Again, early detection is very important. Emily, you are a wealth of information. We are not going away. We're going to stay tuned because we've got some great information coming up from Dr. Chu, especially about diabetic eye disease. If you know someone who has diabetes, if you yourself are dealing with that condition, or if you just want to make a difference in your tribe, in your community, we're going to be talking about some really, really important stuff. Dr. Emily Chu with the National Eye Institute, she's got more great cutting-edge insights. We're going to be looking at that in just a moment. Stay tuned. I'm Dr. DeRose. We'll be right back. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it. But it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. 
Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. With me today, Emily Chu. She is an ophthalmologist, a specialist in the retina, the back of the eye. She works for the National Eye Institute, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. And she's been making a difference in the lives of people throughout America by her research and her educational activities and the work that her whole team does there. Uh, there at the National Eye Institute. Emily, we've talked a lot about different eye disorders, but we really want to hone in on those things that affect the eye when someone has diabetes. Where's the best place to start that discussion? I think we should start about the medical therapies and how it can affect the eyes, because I think that's very important and sometimes neglected when you go to see the eye doctor. Great. Help us, help us understand that. So there, we've done some studies, and not only us, but a number of studies have been conducted in, in previous countries and elsewhere, that if you have very good blood sugar control, and that's, you know, have what we call A1C level, that's very good, uh, and if you keep that up, your chances of having eye disease is reduced dramatically. Mm. In one study, it was reduced by as much as 70%. There's no drugs that can actually do that for you. If you can actually keep your blood sugar uh, in a very good control, that's very important. Blood pressure is also very important. It's another factor that increases your risk of eye disease. And finally, uh, the, your serum cholesterol, the lipids in your blood, if you can have that lowered, that's very helpful. But we found that picking a drug called phenofibrate, which is used to reduce one of the sort of bad components of cholesterol called triglycerides and try to elevate or increase the good cholesterol, which is the HDL or high-density lipoprotein, uh, we found that that also reduced the risk of eye disease as well. So those are three things that the the patient can actually empower themselves to do and, and really help themselves. I think that's something we forget to tell patients. You can, not only is that 
blood sugar important for you know your kidney uh, and your neuropathy, but the eyes is extremely important. Now, some of this is news to me. I mean, I hadn't uh, heard that information about the phenofibrate and uh, the impact on the eye. Does does that apply to any other uh, substances, medications, or supplements that might affect the triglycerides? I mean, I'm thinking of things like maybe niacin or fish oil. No, we've only done the study with the phenofibrate in two very large studies, and it looks like it has an effect, especially people who already have diabetic eye disease. It reduces by about a third. So if you can reduce that disease by a third, you can prevent people from having those injections we're talking about. So it is an important outcome. So it hasn't been completely you know, accepted by the medical community in the sense that and, you know, people who are cardiologists have problems accepting it because it doesn't do anything for the heart, mm-hmm. but it mm-hmm. does do something for the eyes. So this is an important, uh, an important factor that we're trying to educate people. We're actually doing another study to look at that again to see how we can implement that with our medical doctors. Just as you said, not, a lot of medical doctors are not aware of the phenofibrate. So we're trying to make that an education. So, you know, since I'm dealing actively with clinical patients, you know, you, you really got my interest here, and I'm, uh, you got me scratching my brain with this new information. I'm sure some of the others who are tuning in may be wondering the same thing. So we're talking about a drug that's known to lower triglyceride levels. Do we know at this point whether it's helping the eye because the triglyceride levels are lowered, or even if someone had good triglycerides, does this drug seem to do something for the eye? Do we have any insight into that? So the studies that we've done uh, with NIH are in people who have elevated triglycerides, but we don't think it's based on lowering the triglycerides. We see it in people who don't even have that effect. So it does work on partially on that, but it may work on another mechanism. Uh, and that's for a very high-level, you know, basic science that, that, we, that we know about, and we think that, that it, it is important, and not only for triglycerides, but it may act in another way. Well, boy, that's a great message. So basically, the things that we've been hearing about are important as far as the eye. Keep that blood sugar under good control and get the blood pressure down. Do you have a goal as an ophthalmologist that you're telling patients they should be keeping their blood pressure if you see changes in the retina? Oh, I actually tell them even before they get changes in the retina. When I see a patient, I think of them uh, not only as eye patients, but the fact that you know, we're looking at a whole body there, and and patients, you know, are highly motivated by the fact that they can prevent blindness by by themselves by doing things such as reducing their blood pressure and making sure their blood sugar is in good control. So I think that's a powerful message. If an eye doctor can tell you to do that, I think that hopefully helps them because often it's very difficult. These patients have good vision. You know, they're they're seeing fine. So, you know, why would that be? So even before you get into into eye problems, you should have good blood sugar and blood pressure control as well as the cholesterol. Very good. So help us understand then the process of diabetic eye disease. I've heard it explained different ways, and I'm, I'm not sure if it was just uh, simplified for uh, us physicians who weren't eye specialists. Why Why do we think the eye is damaged by these high sugars. We know that blood, little small blood vessels are damaged, and they're filled blood vessels in the eye that are very small. What happens is eventually it causes these blood vessels to leak, uh, and the fluid comes out, and that fluid is damaging to the, to the eye, and it causes your vision to go down. But what's even more important is that those blood vessels eventually 
sort of shrink down and they kind of go away and the and the and the eyes sort of just kind of starve for oxygen. Mm. And it allows these abnormal blood vessels to come on and these abnormal blood vessels actually can bleed and cause scarring and that's the really end stage diabetic eye disease. And that's what used to, you know, I think Days before insulin came along, we have people coming into the eye clinic with seeing eye dogs because there was nothing we could do mm. uh, with those blood vessels. So it's changed dramatically. Uh, with first we did laser treatments, and now we have these injections of drugs. So there's no reason for people to go blind. Uh, we have very good therapies for for this eye disease. So do we use the lasers today, or is that uh, kind of uh, out of vogue? I think it's still very useful. You know, we have different types of patients coming in, people who may we know we could rely on coming back to get, you know, continued treatment. There are people who, you know, either they're very ill or, you know, you're not sure they're going to come back. That laser is very durable. We've done studies looking at the effects of the laser. 20 years later, patients are so protected from it. It's it's certainly becoming not as common because these injections are very good, but in circumstances, lasers is still very, very important part of our, our treatment. So let me see if I understand what you've been explaining, Dr. Chu. When someone has diabetes over time, damage to the small blood vessels in the eye from the high blood sugar, from high blood pressure, from other related factors, causes the eye to... Uh, actually be starving for adequate nutrition because these healthy blood vessels have been damaged. That's correct. As a result, the eye tries to make new blood vessels to nourish the tissues, and those new blood vessels are, are weak and prone to bleed. That's correct. So when you go in with a laser, you're trying to actually destroy those new blood vessels? Is that kind of the, the scenario? Indirectly, because you're destroying areas that are like a stimulus to create those new vessels. You can get rid of that stimulus, which is what the laser does, those blood vessels go away. I see. So it's not actually the blood vessels you're targeting. No, that's right. We don't directly, you know, hit them like a like a target. We're trying to do Pac-Man type of things. But we're doing areas that we know are abnormal. We know they're the ones elaborating some factor that's making these blood vessels come out. And once you do the laser, uh, you know, this this was done... In the 70s, people didn't believe it, but they did a trial, and half of people who got laser and the other half did not. And there was a 50% reduction in the very severe vision loss. So clearly, uh, laser is a very important part of this treatment. So then how do the injections fit in? Just what are you injecting, and how does that injection work? So just think of, I'm sure many people have heard the name Avastin, which is given for cancers. Uh, we know that the blood vessels in cancer are stimulated by this factor called vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF, and these drugs actually counteract this particular factor. We know in diabetic eye disease that there's this increased risk of developing all this, these factors, and this drug actually neutralizes this and, again, settles down the retina. The swelling goes down so we can see better. The blood vessels that are abnormal tend to shrink down, and, and again, you can actually improve the situation with these injections. This is tremendous. So basically, we can today actually prevent someone from losing their vision because of diabetes with these modern techniques. Absolutely, and it starts from just 
good medical therapy, and if you're unlucky to develop some of this disease, the therapies are extremely good. And so that also leads to the point we have to have good screening for patients with diabetic eye disease, which is really important as well, that we pick them up early. And here's when patients should go to have a dilated eye exam. A dilated eye exam means putting eye drops in the eye so the pupil gets very large so we can see the retina well. And that should be done on a yearly basis for anyone with diabetes. So are you saying, Emily, that if someone is diagnosed today with diabetes, they need to be making an appointment to see the eye doctor? Absolutely, especially if you have type 2 diabetes, because you may even have eye disease before you realize you have diabetes. Uh, type 1 diabetes, we have a little bit more leeway. Between 3 and 5 years after onset, we suggest you have your first eye exam. But for type 2 diabetes, we definitely think you should have it on diagnosis. You should have your eyes examined. Wow, this is, uh, this is fascinating material and so practical. We're talking about things that can save your vision, can save the vision of people that you love. Dr. Emily Chu has got more information for us. We're going to be coming right back on today's edition of American Indian Living. Don't go away. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose and with Emily Chu. We are speaking about things that are 
saving to vision, especially if you've been diagnosed with diabetes. Dr. Chu is a retinal specialist. She's an ophthalmologist, an eye specialist who deals especially with the area of the eye that is particularly vulnerable to the complications of diabetes. Emily, you were giving us this general rule of thumb that individuals with diabetes should have a yearly eye exam, but sometimes that changes and they need evaluation more frequently. How does someone make that call? That calls me by your eye doctor who sees you. Uh, for example, if you look like you're progressing and you're at the stage where you might need treatment very soon, they might see you more frequently at least every three or four months, or you may be getting injections in the eye because you've already reached some of the end stage, the swelling of the, the retina or there's new blood vessels growing. They may see you monthly because some of these injections are given. So that schedule is determined by your eye doctor very much. So the main message If you have diabetes, it's a yearly eye exam until the eye doctor says otherwise. And the eye doctor is never going to say, come back in five years. Is that correct? Absolutely not. That's right. That's right. We keep keep tabs on you because, you know, uh, it's possible you may have nothing happen in five years, but we don't want to miss that chance of helping you when we've got all this good treatment to give you. Now, I know in some places, and I think this is true in, in some places in Indian country where there's not easy access to specialist uh, care like ophthalmologists, I understand that many centers are now investing in these retinal cameras, and uh, they can actually take pictures and send them to a specialist. Is that a reasonable thing to be doing, or is that uh, a second-best option at that? It's a very good thing to be doing. There are a number, you know, our population is served uh, by physicians who are probably more based in cities, but, you know, uh, there are a lot of remote areas where, you know, for example, in Alaska, some of the very sparsely populated areas, there just isn't enough medical uh, physicians around. So those are really excellent way of telemedicine, bringing the patient to the physician and getting a diagnosis early enough that when they do need help, that they go and seek help. So that is a very important part of it. And now some of the physicians, the medical physicians, actually have the cameras in their offices and are, are be, and the patients are being screened. So, they, you know, it's like a one-stop shop. And, and But I have to say, though, you really need to see your eye doctor because there are other things you want to look at besides just the diabetic eye mm-hmm. disease, the cataract, the glaucoma, and even macular generation, you want to have that diagnosed. So that eye exam is crucial. So really, there are some things that, if you're in a pinch, can help. And for a person with diabetes, the ideal, there's no substitute for actually seeing a real live ophthalmologist. But in certain circumstances, some of these other screening techniques can be helpful. That's correct. That is absolutely correct. So talk to the person right now. Maybe they're getting treatment for diabetic eye disease. Maybe they've had the injections, maybe they've had laser, and they perhaps have not heard all the messages that we've even given already on this show. Just act, Dr. Chu, like you're speaking to a patient who's coming in to see you. You see pretty advanced uh, damage to the retina. What are the important things you're wanting to communicate? Well, I would let them know that the treatment may not be just one visit, so it may be continuous visit, number of visits, and not to miss those visits if possible to prevent any further loss. 
I will give them a treatment plan. Uh, it could be if they live quite far away and they won't be coming back quite as much. I could give them laser. Uh, the laser could be very effective and actually quite durable. Uh, the injections are are better for certain parts. If you have the swelling of the of the retina, the injections work very well and can improve vision. So if you have that, I would prefer injections over that. I would reassure them that you know this is not going to be painful. We are going to try to do our best to keep the pain uh, as low as possible, and this is a tolerable you know uh, procedures. And, and we would need follow-up. It's very important. We understand patients with diabetes have a lot of other health needs as well. We understand when they can't quite make their appointments, but we do want to keep tabs and making sure that they come back. So once you start treatment, be sure to go back for follow-up. It's never too late to, again, instigate your blood sugars. We've seen people who improve their situation because they have able to improve their medical status as well. So all those things have to be given as you know, counsel to the patients as to what they can do and what we can do. And the expectations is another thing. There's some very severe eye diseases in which we cannot really reverse completely. It's far and few between, especially if you can catch them early, but there are those who have very severe disease no matter what you do, and we try our best to keep them seen as, as much as we can. And for those who don't have perfect 20-20 vision, we have what we call low vision evaluation that helps to maximize what they have using magnifiers, uh, equipment that that really uh, enlarges, uh, even just using the computer, what they call Zoom text. So there are many things we can help patients with impaired vision as well. So basically, if I'm listening to you correctly, you're sharing something that I think not all that many years ago some doctors thought was impossible. You're actually saying that even without treatment, if someone improves their blood sugars, they could have a reversal of some of the damage to the eye. Am I hearing that right, or am I just imagining That's absolutely that? right. So I've seen people who their blood sugars got really out of whack, and they have some swelling of their retina. We said, well, we won't treat it right this moment. It looks like it's a little mild. It doesn't affect the vision terribly yet. Let's see back if you get your blood sugar back. And, you know, they can improve. And the and the studies, the randomized trials, show that there is an improvement in those cases with good medical therapy. Hmm. So the bottom line is don't just trust your eye care to the ophthalmologist. As great as you folks are, you've got to work with that family doctor or the internist or diabetes specialist, whoever you're seeing, and really get the diabetes under control, the blood pressure under control, and even the blood fats under control. Absolutely. It's important for not only eyes, but you know, help improve the kidney and also helps with the neuropathy. So it's the whole body we're talking about. So Dr. Chu, are there other things that should be on our radar screen when it comes to diabetes and eye disease? I think we've covered it pretty well. I think the, the, the interesting data um, in, in one of the studies that have come out more recently last year is looking at diet and showing that people who have a, a, a good a good diet, Mediterranean diet, and eating fish seems to improve the, you know, or lessens the risk of having diabetic eye disease, which is also very intriguing. This is, again, you know, you are what you eat, so I think that may be part of it. It's not been, you know, promoted dramatically, but it's a very interesting study showing that, that this might be also very, very helpful to you. And we know that diets are important for other conditions, such like macular degeneration, uh, but 
not so much for cataracts or other things, but maybe these two are somewhat tied together. The diabetic eye disease and the macrogeneration have some dietary input that, that may, in fact, help these patients. So when we're talking this so-called Mediterranean diet, many Native Americans historically have eaten lots of fruits and vegetables. And the foundation of the Mediterranean diet is really plant foods, even though there may be some fish and other things in that diet. Is, is that correct? That's correct. And olive oil. So, so let me ask you this. Um, supplements for eye disease, often, you know, we've seen patients go to the eye specialist and they'll give them a certain antioxidant formula. What is the current thinking with that? The only disease I know of is for those who already have evidence of macrogeneration, that has been proven to reduce the risk of very severe macrogeneration by 25% in five years. So here, if you see the first sign of macrogeneration, patients should be uh, at least encouraged to take the supplement, and it's called the Age-Related Eye Disease Study Supplement, or ERITS-1 or 2, ERITS-2 is probably a little bit better, but it has vitamin C, vitamin E, uh, uh, lutein, zeaxanthine, and zinc. And that seems to be really important for people with macrogeneration. But for other diseases, we have really no evidence that supplements will help in any way. But what's interesting to me is things like lutein and zeaxanthine. I mean, these are, you know, from plant. They're phytochemicals from plants. Exactly. So. So presumably, when you're eating more fruits and vegetables, you're getting more of these things, even though it may not be in that controlled supplement, right? Right, right. Lutein cysanthine are particularly in green leafy vegetables. So, so, so basically, if, if I'm hearing you right, we're talking these same kind of constituents. We don't maybe know what they all are, but when you talk about this plant-based diet or Mediterranean diet, this is helping not just the macular degeneration, which the supplements are being used for, but you're telling us that the research now convincingly shows that can also decrease diabetic eye problems. That's what it's suggesting, and that's only one one study, but I think it's a very, one is a randomized trial, it's very powerful, and then the other one is looking at the sort of observational, like what did you eat type of thing, uh, and it suggests fish was important. So I think there's interesting data for us to study further but certainly I think it's very intriguing that, that it's very suggestive that it be very helpful. Well, Emily, we're just about out of time, but I know you've got some uh, great resources there at the National Eye Institute. How can someone tap into those resources? Where do they find them? I think if you go online to nei.nih.gov for the National Eye Institute, you'll see a, a number of information there, health information, uh, that pertains to diabetic eye disease, including questions to ask your doctor when you go and see them, what sort of things you expect when you get treatment, uh, and again, these things that we just talked about, you know, the, the different treatments. So I think that will be able to help you. And plus, there'll be resources, hopefully close to you, uh, that you can go to for low vision or to, to ask eye care providers. So that's all listed in there. And I think that would be very helpful to the patients um, who, who need more information. So let me see if I've got this correct. I've got to remember the National Eye Institute because that's where you work. Right. And that's part of the National Institutes of Health. Institutes of Health. That's correct. So the, the initials are nei.nih.gov. That's correct. And that'll bring me to the National Eye Institute and all the resources that you and your team have pulled together. Right. You know, before we step away, Emily, 
is there any cutting edge stuff that's happening, things, studies that are out there in the works that, that we should know about? Well, there's a big consortium looking at diabetic eye disease that's supported by NIH, and we're we're always looking at new types of drugs, uh, what can be done, uh, and are there better ways of determining, you know, who has eye disease. So so we're constantly, your tax dollars being paid uh, into very good projects that hopefully will continue to improve the eye health of everyone in in this nation, including those with diabetes. You know, and what's so encouraging to me about the messages you've been giving, it's so easy for us to look to our elders, I mean, this is very important, of course, and in Indian country, but in, in other cultures as well. And although we can be inspired by the stories of our elders, sometimes we get discouraged by things that happen to our parents or our grandparents. And sometimes we get a fatalistic outlook, like, well, you know, grandma got eye disease from her diabetes, and then she went blind. But what you're saying is the landscape has changed dramatically. Oh, dramatically, dramatically, absolutely, absolutely. So, so, so eye disease is not a uh, a death sentence or a vision death sentence anymore. Don't be afraid to get checked out, to get screened, and then get the help you need. Absolutely, that's the key. Dr. Chu, it's been great having you on the show. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Dr. Chu has got to step away, but we've got another great segment coming up on today's edition of American Indian Living that you don't want to miss. We will be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living right after these words. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand, and someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. Emily Chu has had to slip off to another appointment, but we've got a special encore presentation for you that highlights another area that can be impacted by diabetes that is often overlooked, another area that can have silent changes from diabetes that still take a toll on us. That is mental health. To get some answers, we go to an interview that I conducted in Spokane, Washington in the summer of 2015. Across from me, a name that's very familiar to many people throughout Indian country and beyond, it's Dr. Neil Nedley. Neil, it's great to have you with us here. Well, thank you, Dr. DeRose. It's great to be with you. Neil, you've made a huge impact in helping people improve their mental health. You're known by many for your developing of the uh, Nedley Depression Recovery Program. Uh, How long has that program been out there? Well, it came out in 2002. We used to just do it in the office clinical setting, and then we expanded it to... uh, to have more people access it. And so we came out with a DVD program as well as the workbook. It went along with some textbooks and then trained directors and facilitators. Now, I know I've gone through that training myself, and uh, I know many others have gone through it. Do you have any idea on how many people you've trained to run these community-based depression recovery programs? It's um, in the hundreds, but I'm not sure exactly Uh how many. I know we've had 5,700 uh, as of a year ago, that had gone through the entire eight-week program, and so that we had before and after results. Oh, okay. From so, uh, not just a small number. No, no. So, what kind of results are you seeing with the program? Well, the average uh, individual comes in with moderate depression mm-hmm. and leaves with no depression. Now, wait a minute. They come with moderate depression. Moderate, major depression. Eight weeks, the average individual leaves with no depression. The, the response rate, you know, in the medical world, we look at response rates, and the idea of a response rate is that you have to um, lower your depression scores by greater than 50%. Okay. And so the response rate for major depression um, is 85% in that program. Now, this seems incredible because a lot of us as physicians, we're used to seeing data on prescription medications for depression. I mean, how does it compare to something like that? Well, it's far superior to actually anything that's been described for depression to date. Mm-hmm. And, you know, interestingly, it doesn't have side effects. It's just a mental health education program. Uh-huh. You're just learning how the brain works and, and uh, being coached to incorporate that information in your life. And it turns out it works better than any combination of antidepressants or any other modality for depression. So what kind, of, uh, what kind of principles are you using? Because I know folks in Indian country have used these principles. They've said they make a difference. What does the program look like if you were to just encapsulate it quickly? Well, we deal first with lifestyle measures. Um, mm-hmm. And so what we find, find out is that our behavior actually does have an influence over our emotions. Okay. And so the first thing we do is actually have the individual undergo behavioral changes that will optimize the brain and optimize their emotions. So physical exercise, for instance. Okay. Um, intermittent uh, training and other types of aerobic exercise. Getting them to be fit is one of the principles that we utilize. Uh, circadian rhythm, getting them on a regular sleep-wake schedule. Hmm. And ideally, actually it's been shown to be equivalent to Prozac, is to be changed over to an early-to-bed, early-to-rise 
um, circadian rhythm. Now, l- let me see if I've got this straight. So one of the first, actually the first of this uh, very popular class of drugs for depression, Prozac, which we know works. I mean, you, you can actually Correct. look at research on it. Yeah. You're saying you can get as much benefit from just getting to bed earlier every night? That's correct. Yeah, it actually um, helps greatly with getting rid of negative thoughts. Really? Just yes. going to bed earlier? Just going to bed earlier and getting up earlier and getting, getting light in the morning is okay. an additional benefit. So what does that mean earlier? What time do you, do you tell people to shoot for a oh, certain hour? Ideally around 9 o'clock. Wow. You know, uh, 10 o'clock is, is still okay, but uh, once it starts getting much past that, then we're going to see a significant drop-off in regards to emotional and mental health benefit. So you're telling people, get exercise, go to bed earlier. What other behavioral advice do you give in your program? Well, nutritional advice. And mm-hmm. so uh, we're looking at a, uh, a nutritional program that's going to be adequate in getting both tryptophan and tyrosine into the brain. And why are why are these things important? Tryptophan is what's turned into serotonin, so that helps with anxiety, helps you to stay calm under stress, helps your mood to be um, elevated and be able to take care of the usual nuisances of life without getting okay. uh, perturbed over them. Mm-hmm. And then what about the tyrosine? Uh, tyrosine helps out with your focus, um, with your energy level. It helps out with fatigue. And it also helps out with interest because tyrosine gets turned into two chemicals, norepinephrine, as well as dopamine, mm. and dopamine has a lot to do with our interest and motivation in life. Okay. So if someone's listening, maybe they have a nutritional background, they say, well, tryptophan and tyrosine, those are amino acids or protein building blocks, right? That's correct. So they're saying, well, I'm glad I'm eating all that bacon and eggs and wild yeah, game, cause, and is that right? Well, it turns out that those are, those are good sources of tryptophan and tyrosine, but they're not, they're not going to get it into the brain. They may get into your muscle or other areas. Uh-huh. It's actually a carbohydrate-mediated mechanism. So what does that mean? That means that we need to have um, carbs uh, on board. And so meat is a carbohydrate-deficient food. Okay. It's high in protein, high in fat, but virtually void in carbohydrates. And in addition, the amino acid mixture in meat actually produces more competitors to prevent tryptophan and tyrosine from getting into the brain. Wow. So what do, what do you tell people to eat then if they want to improve tyrosine and tryptophan in the brain? Well, there's fortunately a lot of plant foods that have them. Okay. And so, uh, you know, things like um, uh, soy, things like lentils, uh-huh. um, legumes, even spinach, uh, you know, the, the greens. Uh, mustard greens are a very good source of, um, of tyrosine. Uh, and uh, even watermelon is a pretty good source really? of, uh, of tyrosine, yeah. So eating watermelon is good for my brain? It's good for your brain, yeah. It can help pro- provide some energy and focus. One of the reasons why we tell people not to eat, you know, if they're on the early-to-bed, early-to-rise program, it's best not to eat watermelon in the evening. Why is that? Uh, because it'll make you so you don't want to go to sleep. You know, it can rip you up a Oh, bit. it has that <laughs> much of an effect. Yeah, if you're on a caffeine-free program. Okay. And so, and caffeine-free is one of the additional benefits of the program. It is a caffeine-free program, and that helps with your anxiety levels, helps your frontal lobe to be able to cope more with stresses. Uh, caffeine is actually now being called the silent killer of emotional intelligence. Wait a minute. The silent killer of emotional of intelligence? Emotional intelligence, yeah. Now, I think all the listeners have probably heard about emotional intelligence, but 
in just a nutshell, what is that? Emotional intelligence is knowing and understanding your emotions and the emotions of others and responding to those emotions in a healthy way. Okay, and you're saying if I'm using caffeine, I'm not going to be as in touch with my own emotions as I could be? That's right, and the emotions of others. Wow. And you're not going to tend to respond as appropriately. For instance, uh, studies have shown that when caffeine is on board, you're more likely to gossip, uh, which is not the most emotionally intelligent thing to do. Because it can come back and <laughs> That's get you in trouble. That's right, exactly. And can contribute to your depression. <laughs> okay, well, this is interesting. So we've got regular hours for sleep, getting to bed early. We've got exercise. We've got proper nutrition. We're avoiding the caffeine. Any other important pillars of your program? Well, the, and the rest of the important pillar has to do with actually analyzing our thoughts. Oh, okay. So although it's our behaviors that influence our our emotions, our thoughts are actually the cause of our emotions and behavior. So once we get the brain chemistry to the point where we can actually be a good analyzer of our thoughts, mm-hmm. we teach people the 10 different ways of distorted thinking and how to correct those thoughts and reconstruct them into what is accurate. And accurate thoughts produce much more calm, and actually much more elevated moods. Now, do people who have depression, do they realize their thoughts are not accurate? No, they think that they're uh, rational and just uh, right on board and that they're looking at life, um, you know, uh, through a correct lens. But um, they find out in the program uh, through very common examples that uh, they're actually using many of these distorted thoughts on a regular basis. And so it's quite enlightening for them. It's actually exciting. At first they think, wait a minute, you're saying that this is my problem and the way I'm thinking? But uh, in in reality, it's actually empowering to them to recognize that it is their thoughts that cause their emotions and behavior because that's something they can change. Wow. Dr. Nedley, our time has just about slipped away. How does someone get more information about the Depression Recovery Program? Well, they could call in the U.S., 580-226-8007, or they could log on to our website, nedleyhealthsolutions.com, and, um, and learn more about our depression and anxiety recovery programs. Nedleyhealthsolutions.com? Correct. That phone number again? 580-226-8007. Five eight zero two two six eight zero zero seven. Yes. Well, that's really all we've got time for in this edition of American Indian Living. We've got to close out our program from the Convention Center in Spokane, Washington. Hopefully you've enjoyed those insights from Dr. Neil Nedley, speaking about simple things you can do to make a difference as far as your mental health. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.